0: Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donald Loring. Wabanaki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, Maine, in partnership with WMPG Portland, Maine. This is the second show in our ICE series. This series is dedicated to the Wabanaki people of Maine to help them understand the history of Wabanaki state relations. It is my intention to read every word of these three transcripts on the air and then discuss the implications. Why we are where we are today and why we are treated like second class citizens at every turn. The 1942 transcripts reveal the dialogue between the legislative research committee members and the witnesses they called before them to discuss the quote, Indian problem, unquote. The final solution they were pursuing is why this series is called ICE, Isolation, Control, and Elimination. Our guests today include my co-authors of One Nation Under Fraud a Remonstrance, as well as longtime guests, Professor Harold Prince and Professor Darren Ranko, Eric Menert, Chief Judge of the Penobscot Nation Tribal Court, is a member of the bars of the state of Maine, state of Massachusetts, and has been admitted to practice before the federal district courts of Maine and Massachusetts, the First Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals and the U.S. Supreme Court. Attorney Joseph Gauss is a legal researcher and writing specialist. In addition to his work in private practice, he has served as professor of legal research and writing and professor of business law in the Maine Community College system. Prior to practicing law, he worked as a legislative researcher for the main Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Professor Harold Prince is a native of the Netherlands. He is a distinguished professor of anthropology and an emeritus at the University of Kansas and is well known and highly respected within the Wabanaki communities. Professor Dan Ranko is a member of the Penobscot Nation and Professor of Anthropology and Chair of Native American Studies at the University of Maine. Welcome to the show, everyone. We begin by continuing our reading of the McDonald transcript, starting on page 17 and ending on page 27. When we finish the reading, we will discuss what was said. So we're gonna start the reading now And this reading actually starts at the bottom of page 16 with uh, Mr. McDonald. So, Mr. McDonald.
1: Mm, Thank you, Donna. Mr. McDonald, I think if we could only get some law to prohibit white men living on the reservation, if they married a squaw, they've got to leave there.
2: Mr. Boucher, if a white man has a squaw, get them off the reservation, keep them off the rest of their life, and the children can't go back.
3: Mr. Cummings, from now on, that would not bother those now
4: there.
0: Harold, Mr. Pelletier.
4: Is that problem alleviated any since this war boom started?
1: Mr. McDonald. yes, of course it is alleviated quite a bit.
4: Pelletier, but it exists during depression times?
1: Mr. McDonald, during depression times.
3: Mr. Cummings, we have quite a few in the Todd-Bath shipyards on national defense. The only ones really on relief are the old relief cases. Chairman Dow, what is the attitude of those in South Portland? Are they willing on their wages to support themselves?
1: Mr. McDonald, I do not think the Indians are any worse than any other group of people you run into, but I think they are somewhat discriminated against because of the fact people think of them as wards of the state. I have never found any legal background for this or any reason why they are wards, but they are considered wards. And when there is a time of depression, your local employers will say, quote, the state will take care of them, we will not employ them, end quote. They do not have the same advantages and competition for work the white man does.
3: Chairman Dow. Wasn't that conclusion reached probably by the moral consideration rather than by legal by the legal situation? We kicked them into two little small places, and after all, we should take care of them.
1: Mr. McDonald, that is the reason behind it, Mr. Weber. But under the federal law, they are now citizens, Mr. McDonald. They are now citizens, Mr. Weber. And they know that, but they are not insisting on their rights, Mr. McDonald. They never insisted on their rights because they know if they take up those rights, they are very apt to lose those rights we give them under our state laws. If they insist on the right to vote and the responsibility of citizens, then we have got to get some good ground for saying there is no need of continuing the Indian tribes as such. I know that is the reason they never pushed it. Mr.
2: Boucher, the suggestion was made at one meeting we would make them full-fledged citizens of the state and they didn't appeal to and that didn't appeal to them at all.
1: Mr. McDonald, no, but I think probably it would be the best thing in the world for them. Mr. Weber, wouldn't we be doing the Indians themselves a kindness if we destroyed the reservation system and spread them offered opportunities for education for those who could take it in such degree as they could, and attempt in a long-range program to rehabilitate them in diversified places, in business, and so forth? Mr. McDonald, yes, I think we would be doing them a favor. On the other hand, I can see many difficulties in trying to accomplish that. I do not think you can arbitrarily uproot them from the reservation and place them throughout the state of Maine and have them satisfied or happy and I am positive you would find all kinds of opposition to it. Chairman Dow, not
3: only from the Indians. Mr. McDonald, oh, heavens no, Mr. Cummings, you see, we have two reservations, the Passamaquoddy and Pleasant Point, and the Passamaquoddy tribe, and there's 45 miles distance between them. Princeton has 145, and we talked of having those at Princeton move down to Pleasant Point and settle. That is one reason they were separated, because they couldn't get along together. So, when Massachusetts and Maine started, because the Indians couldn't get along together, they sent delegates down to Pleasant Point for months and allowed so many Indians to go and then come back and report where they wanted to settle. They found this big lake up in Princeton, and one-third of the tribe left Pleasant Point. That solved that problem. I tried several years ago to get those at Princeton to go back to Pleasant Point, but some of the old-timers said, quote, that is where we do not want to go, close quote. They are the same tribe, but they could not get along. Chairman Dow, are there religious differences? Mr. Cummings, some religious differences.
1: Mr. Weber, is your religion's problem with the Penobscots?
3: Mr. Cummings, yes. Chairman Dow, what is the trouble at the other place? What is the religion's problem there?
1: Mr. McDonald, some of them are Protestants and they have established a little Protestant church and there are the usual fights. Mr. Weber, isn't there more to it than that? The state supports Catholic institutions, church, and school. And because the Protestant situation is a newer development, the state is not supporting that. And that is leading to jealousy as the Protestant group grows larger. Mr. McDonald, that is right. We do pay the tuition for the children to attend the Old Town public schools. That is, we pay the tuition for all Protestant children that want to attend grade schools in Old Town so they do not have to go to parochial school. On the other hand... They have to cross the river and go to the old town schools.
3: Chairman Dow, that makes a little friction.
1: Mr. MacDonald, that is right. Mr. Weber, is crossing of that river a perfectly safe proposition for these children? Mr. MacDonald, I think so. There was a large boat and ferry that takes the children across. Mr. Weber, at all seasons of the year? Mr. MacDonald, except when the river is frozen, and then they walk over the ice. The dangerous part, perhaps, is a few days in the spring and fall when the river is thawing or freezing.
3: Mr. Cummings, and we pay the transportation on the boat. Chairman Dow, are there enough Protestant children to have a school of their own?
1: Mr. McDonald, no. The only solution might be to have public schools on the reservation. I don't imagine they would appreciate that. They have had the other system so long.
3: Chairman Dow, Probably the Catholic people couldn't see any reason for uprooting what is already established.
2: Mr. Boucher, they would have to have two schools. That is the only
3: way they would have any peace. Chairman Dow, in ordinary times, they haven't got anything to do but fight, have they?
1: Mr. McDonald, I think probably the final solution of this would be a lot of concentrated thought that will result in some long-time plan that perhaps can be carried out. I do not think it is something you can arbitrarily do at one session of the legislature, unless we can, by law, set up a plan that will take effect eventually.
3: Chairman Dow, we have allowed the situation to go on so long that we cannot shut the door with justice to them. Mr. Payson,
2: what would your longtime plan envision?
1: Mr. McDonald, I think you would have to set up some plan whereby children born after a certain date, for instance, would not become members of the tribe. And as people who now own property died off, their property would revert to the state. And we might make some provision for these Indian reservations to be included in adjacent towns and to become part of adjacent towns. Or else we might divide up the reservations, make them part of adjacent towns, and give to each Indian a certain piece of property. Give him title to it and give them the rights of citizenship. Let them vote and do everything anybody else does. Then he would have the right to sell the property to whoever he pleased. Probably that would be the easiest way to ever get the tribe to ever get the tribe broken up, because in many instances they would sell, and white people would own the reservation, and that would scatter the tribe. Whether that is fair or reasonable, I don't know.
4: But in years to come, being spread over a wide area, they would finally become assimilated. Chairman Dow. I do not object to going
3: through with the treaty and paying my share of taxes, but I do not like this situation as it has developed.
1: Mr. Weber, Mr. Cummings or Mr. McDonald, either one, approximately how many Indians altogether on the two reservations? Uh,
3: Mr. Cummings, approximately 1,200 both tribes.
1: Mr. Weber, what percentage would you estimate of real
3: full-blooded Indians? Mr. Cummings, it is pretty thin, pretty small. Mr. Boucher, 10%. Mr. Cummings, I do not think so.
1: Mr. Weber, less than 100?
3: Mr. Cummings, yes. Chairman Dow, can I ask a question on that same line? What is the comparative age of these full bloods? Are they young or medium or old age? Mr. Cummings, old age.
2: Mr. Payson, what is the percentage of dependents? Mr.
3: Cummings, Well, I would say about 50% of them. Mr. Payson,
2: that is much higher than the percentage of dependents through the state as a whole.
3: Mr. Cummings, amongst Indians of a mixed breed, of course, there's a lot of sickness that holds them back from doing steady work. TB and syphilis, that holds them back from doing work.
1: Mr. Weber, is there a large incidence of venereal disease?
3: Mr. Cummings, the doctors are cleaning it up pretty well. There has been. Up to 10 years ago, there was a lot of it. Now we are just commencing to get it into pretty good shape. Some of the hard cases, of course, will never be able to cure. Chairman Dow, where are those handled? Right on the reservation by the local doctor? Mr. Cummings, yes, there's a doctor serving each tribe full time.
1: Mr. McDonald, he is not full time for us, does not give his full time to the Indians, but we have him on contract to take
3: care of the health problem. Mr. Chairman Dow. And if they want a doctor, they call him in.
1: Mr. McDonald, that is right. Mr. Weber, I believe you stated before we started to make a record here that the population of both reservations is increasing. Mr. McDonald, slightly, not very rapidly. Mr. Weber, what is their capacity to absorb education?
3: Mr. Cummings, well, of course, they're kind of slow. You know, they start in high school and some of them drop out, say 14 start in the freshman class and there may be possibly four graduate. Some are smart. Chairman Dow, is there any race consciousness as they go to these high schools? Mr. Cummings, no. I know one of the boys was captain of the basketball team, and some of them are baseball players. I do not think there is any race problem. Mr. Boucher, they have their own fights at home. Chairman Dow, I thought if you split them up, they might be terribly handicapped. Perhaps they're not. Mr. Cummings, no.
1: Mr. McDonald, They don't seem to have much ambition, but I do not know how much may be due to the fact we overprotect them. You have this frequently happen. A member of the tribe will go off and perhaps live down in Connecticut, and every so often they have need of an operation or something and they will show up on the reservation and want help, because it has always been the policy. I don't know whether it is the policy, but they have always been given free medical care. One of the reasons for that was to try to keep them as healthy as possible but they still retain that idea there is something they can fall back on if they want to come back to the reservation and be supported if necessary.
3: Chairman Dow, wouldn't that have a tendency with you and me to destroy our initiative?
1: Mr. McDonald, that is why I say, that
3: is what I say. Chairman Dow, it is not peculiar to them.
1: Mr. Weber, the WPA feel the world owes owes them a living, and the Indians feel the state of Maine owes them a living. Mr. McDonald, of course, there is another solution of this whole problem, if it can be accomplished, and that is to let the federal government take over the Indians. They have all the Indians except a few tribes in the eastern states. Mr. Weber, that was mentioned yesterday. Is there anything that can be done? Mr. McDonald, have we talked to the Bureau of Indian Affairs about it? Of course, they are adverse to doing it because they say they haven't the money. But if Congress passed a bill, I do not see why it couldn't be done.
4: Mr. Hildreth. I do not see how we can get it done under a New Deal administration unless we elect Bram.
1: Mr.
2: Payson, what is the basis for the myth, we owe them millions of dollars? Is, is Massachusetts supposed to have uh, gypped them?
1: Mr. MacDonald, there is no basis.
2: Mr. Boucher, if you want to find out about that, see Miss Shea. She will tell you all about it.
3: Chairman Dow. As far as this federalization is concerned, I'm a little skeptical about that. The experience has been, as far as the federal government is concerned, that we will still pay through the nose in some form of taxes. Mr. Boucher, we are paying for tribes here and also for tribes out west. Chairman Dow, we can do it cheaper than Washington can do it.
1: Mr. MacDonald. There might be one advantage in the federal government handling it, in that they have the Indian schools and facilities that encourage the
4: Indians to be more self-supporting. Mr. Hildreth, it seems to me the state ought to try to get the federal government to do it, but set up a policy. If the federal government won't do it, that will eventually bust it up over a period of time so as not to be so cruel.
1: Mr. MacDonald, I think it would be more effective coming from the legislature than from the department. We have discussed it with some members of congress and the indians affair bureau you know you can talk about breaking up this tribe and all that but nevertheless i think we have a real responsibility to these indians to do something to try to get them absorbed if we are going to absorb them at all and i do not think we are giving them the service today that is going to enable them to do that
4: mr Pelletier. there has been a bureau in existence to take care of indians for many years and whether they have 1200 more wouldn't make but little difference Chairman Dow, I'm not finding fault.
2: Mr. Payson, isn't it fundamentally sound that as a long-range program, this thing ought to be broken up and have them put out among people and not segregated in a separate community?
1: Mr. MacDonald, I suppose you can call that a matter of opinion. You can find plenty of people in the state of Maine that will not agree with that at all. Mr. Payson, why? Mr. MacDonald, because they feel we owe the Indians everything. You run into that this a sentimental feeling regarding the indians you will find it very prevalent that we have taken a lot away from the indians and there is not too much we can do for them
2: mr payson forgetting that and using a common sense basis they are not only entitled to a lot from us but entitled to self support and opportunity to earn their own living
1: mr mcdonald
0: oh okay that's the end of that that's the end of page 27 so we'll stop there and kind of review the conversation that just took place. So I'm gonna ask uh, Darren to let us know what your thoughts are on that conversation.
2: Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, thanks Donna and really enjoy <laughs> joining you all this morning. Um, yeah, I mean, there are a few things that really jump out Uh, I do wanna say like mentioning the S word is a little tricky for me, Uh, but that is the racialized language that um, these people had for us as native people. Um, And I think the other thing that sort of demonstrates this racialization um, and sort of second-class citizenship is uh, a couple of things. First of all, they're deciding the fate of people and not bringing them into the discussion. It's, It's a really, it's a pretty crazy, uh, notion like in the way that you would think policy would be made um, but i think that also reveals a, a huge racialized component that they actually do see these people as unable to make decisions about their own future um i mean this in and, and this is uh um the reference to miss shea who i think is uh um, um uh uh Perhaps I don't know, Donna. Is this who 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 you think that is? Is that Madeline or
0: it, it could be Florence or Pauline? Florence. Um,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. It was actually yeah. Maybe it's Florence. But you know, there are a, a number of these folks who had, you know, first of all, just the way they dismissed her outright as a as a person that had a great knowledge about treaties and and our rights. You know, in terms of that, um, also just it's it just. It, and, and then you layer on top of that, they don't understand, like, uh I forget who it was, um I think it was McDonald, but really not even understanding like the his, the basic history of like, why do we have, why, why is it that they're wards? Like, I can't, re- I don't even know, it just is the thing. And not understanding the, the intensive legislation, you know, starting basically from statehood that made us wards, like that this was a purposeful you know, a legislative intent uh, in the 19th century to um, make us wards and not compensate us for all the takings and that sort of thing. So it it is pretty revealing that they are taking through that ignorance and racialization, seeing, you know, basically coming up with a logic that only determines um, assimilating us, uh, breaking us up and sort of, you know, disabusing any of the kind of, interest that we might have as native people uh, in the policy discussion. um it's 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 not surprising, but it to actually give the words to it. It is pretty shocking
0: Harold
4: yeah, I was imagining um Pauline and Lee O'Shea um, and Florence Nicola and Lucy and um, the various chiefs sitting in eavesdropping on this particular conversation and whether they would be surprised or not. And the fact is I think that they would not be surprised at all. Um, It would just be more revealing and more open because here you see a group of white males discussing the fate and the future of an indigenous communities in Maine. Um, And what the other thing is striking and I think it's often um, forgotten when people talk about the great victory when Maine Indians had, finally are getting the right to vote, people don't realize that that was a poison pill. Um, the right to vote uh, was recognized by um, the tribal leadership as a um, as a way for full assimilation, but also thereby the destruction of tribal rights, as sovereignty. And so the fight uh, about voting was not so much whether the main state government was a white supremacy uh, state that denied them the vote. No, the problem was the exact opposite. They wanted to give them the vote so they could abolish the reservations. So there's a paradoxical component here. And uh, like with all paradoxes, they are consisting of internal contradictions. And that permeates this whole discussion is that Um, not so much, in my view, a lack of knowledge as much as a policy that is being formulated uh, here in a discussion in Among These Men to later uh, find um, a textual component in terms of a bill that's going to be presented and voted on uh, in Augusta. And so um, this is basically coming into the kitchen of a number of people who are basically creating an element in the structural power of the state of Maine to fully assimilate and abolish uh, the uh, indigenous uh, tribes as political entities. And so today with the discussion about sovereignty, here you see really the uh, the nails in the coffin are being uh, prepared.
0: Okay. Um, Eric,
4: are you settled?
3: I am. So uh, I think what struck me is um, the the lack of knowledge, whether intentional or uh, um, simple negligence on the part of the legislatures in understanding the law. Um, When they talk about, I think it's Mr. McDonald talks on page 22, about they're going to give each Indian a certain piece of property, give them title to it, and then, let them sell the land, that actually runs afoul of the the non alienation Act of 1790 and runs afoul of the Marshall Trilogy as well, um, in which the federal government is supposed to be the sole organ uh, that treats with the tribes. The other thing that astounded me is when you look at uh, um, Mr. Payson's and Mr. McDonald's conversation about how much the tribes were owed that um, mr. Payson asked the question what is the basis for the myth <laughs> so it's not like it's prejudging it or anything here's a myth I'm going to tell you this is a myth so I want your answer to, uh, give me the right answer here um, that we owe them millions of dollars is Massachusetts supposed to have gypped them and the mr. McDonald says oh no there is no basis for that but we know that's untrue uh, we have the testimony from the Attorney General saying I' opened the door looked at it saw that we owed the tribes millions of dollars and then shut the door. What it suggests to me is that we're not really talking about policy making, we're talking about politics and how can the government protect, the state government protect its economic interest um, to the best of its ability and and that means not dealing justly and fairly with the tribes.
0: Thanks, Donna.
1: You know, one thing that was really striking to me, and I think probably a lot of folks is the conversation in particular about children who are going to school. Um, And then it even comes up as a point of, of discussion whether or not it's a safe proposition to have children from the reservation crossing a river in order to do that on a daily basis. And the legislature's, you know, discussion, as we just heard, Is essentially that yeah, it's safe unless the river is in a period of you know freezing or thawing, you know, meaning those like transitional periods of the year. And the conversation um horrifically just kind of ends there. There's there's no further, and what should we do to make it safe for these kids? Um, you know, and I, I bring that up because um, one, it it's certainly shocking, um, and I think noteworthy, but two, you know, one of the considerations here i think is to look at this from a broader thirty thousand foot view and um you know some of the things that we're hearing in this transcript you can draw parallels to the convention on the prevention and punishment of the crime of genocide um so if you if anybody is interested you can go to www.un.org and then go to their genocide prevention page and it has a very clear definition um which is under article two and i'm just going to read just briefly uh, because I think people will find this to be uh, interesting uh, and applicable and it I'm quoting here from the UN page in the present convention genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national ethnical racial or religious group as such and then it lists any of the following things which would fit that definition a is a very extreme example, right? But it's killing members of the group. Okay. B, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. C, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life which are calculated to bring about the group's physical destruction in whole or in part. D, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. And E, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group so you know I think people can draw their own conclusions for how well those things fit and I I know that we've only read a 10-page portion of this much larger conversation but I just wanted to read that for us all today because I think that uh, perhaps there will be some further reflection as we go through where we can see a lot of this applying um, based on this conversation.
2: Karen, yeah, I just want <clears throat> to pick up where uh, Eric Eric mentioned some of the things around the the law um, pieces of of the level of ignorance, but also that this is patently political and not actually seeking to solve a policy problem. Was of course they bring up the federal government, um, and I'll also dismiss it. But it it's one of these situations where they're like, oh, well, the federal government has this infrastructure, perhaps they can uh, deal with this and blah, 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 blah. But then they also say, but we're close by and we're we can do this more efficiently. But of course, what they're saying, the whole point of their <laughs> engagement here is to not do anything, is to get rid of doing anything, absolutely. So the idea that they both use the logic of we would do this better than the federal government as a way to kind of prevent that from happening on the one hand, and on the other hand to say, we actually wanna get out of this entirely and break it up. And as Joe mentioned, you know, basically um, run afoul of, you know, uh, uh, notions of of genocide, Um, that this, you know, this is very consistent as we've had these discussions all along is, you know, wardship, you know, to the extent that it benefits the state and it allows for the expropriation of indigenous lands and and whatever uncomfortable situations that uh, arises but you know to the extent that even wardship might be considered you know a forced wardship might be something of advantage at any moment in time that is like their fault right i mean it's 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 the war against uh you know, not it's not the war on poverty; it's the war against poor people, or whatever. You know, it's it's that sort of framework of, you know, punishing those who you have, you know, created this condition for.
0: Eric,
3: I, I wanted to pick up on, on where Joe had talked a little bit about um, how the the assimilation of the children is actually a, a form of genocide because. The Indian Child Welfare Act was a direct response to that concern, um, and that was a good thing. The Indian Child Welfare Act saying, "Look, we we are going to ensure that tribes have a role anytime there is a, a child in need of services." But what we're seeing is that this whole idea of assimilation and taking the children away has raised its head even today in the Brackeen case. Um, where they're trying to destroy the Indian Child Welfare Act and, and raises concerns that um, the idea of assimilation is not dead, that there is a desire to continue to try and force the tribes into assimilation to destroy the tribes. Harold?
0: Harold?
4: Yeah, uh, several comments. Uh, one, uh, back to um, the question whether this was an ignorance about law uh, and whether this was an issue of policy or politics. Um, several comments. Uh, Hildreth um, is uh, a Bowdoin College graduate who has a law degree from Harvard, went on afterwards uh, to a great political career, um, but had also an academic career, became the president of Bucknell University and then was appointed ambassador to Pakistan. So if you look at the credentials of a man like Hildreth, um, you cannot really assume that these people were ignorant. Uh, I just don't think that matches their uh, profiles. Uh, That's an important piece because you have to ask yourself, who are these people sitting in these committees? So you get a guy like Pelletier, who is a specialist in sewage in Sanford, I think, uh, has very little background. so uh, when he displays a lack of knowledge, that's one thing. When Hildreth, who didn't say much, uh, but was, when he's asking questions, they're actually um, very interesting. And if I may go back to uh, Hildreth, because this is important in terms of what happened in the 1970s and the 1980s um, uh, settlement of the land claims. But in the 1970s, we know, of course, that the tribes in particular Penobscot and the Pescemecote initially, where it became federally recognized. And this is uh, what is in the transcript. If I may read that section again, um, uh, starting with Weber, who says the WPA feels the world owes them a living and the Indians feel the state of Maine owes them a living. Then MacDonald, who was the, the person who was providing the information, uh, says, of course, there's another solution to this whole problem. It can be accomplished. And that is to let the federal government take over the Indians. They have all the Indians except for a few tribes in the eastern United States. Weber, that was mentioned yesterday. Is there anything that can be done? McDonald, we've talked to the Bureau of Indian Affairs about it. And of course, they are adverse to doing it because they haven't got the money. But if Congress passed the bill, I do not see why it couldn't be done. And then Hildreth, the man who I just referred to, the, the lawyer um, who specialized uh, in law from Harvard, he says, I do not. See how we can get it done under a New Deal administration unless we get we elect brand. Now the New Deal administration, for your audience, is of course, the Roosevelt administration and the passing of the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934 under John Collier. And that's a very important piece because uh, in the 1930s, during the Great Depression, um, under Collier, there was an effort to bring self-government back to the tribes. That whole policy that was executed, but there was indeed a lack of lack of money. But a lot of tribes uh, have been organized politically to deal with the government under the IRA of 1934, and clearly Hildreth knows that, and so is wondering to what degree the state of Maine uh, could possibly um, make that move to. Um, uh, And that's of course not picked up on afterwards, and later the exact opposite is happening, not only because of the state of Maine, but also because the federal government um, under Eisenhower is pursuing an assimilation policy and a termination of the tribe. So it's the exact opposite of what happened under the Roosevelt administration. So you have to see these debates and these discussions, not just in terms of um, internal politics in Maine, but also in terms of the national politics of Indian country vis-a-vis the federal government.
0: Good
1: point, Uh, Joe. Thank you, Donna. Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, staying with the topic of assimilation, to me, one of the most striking lines in the transcript that we heard today is when on page 18, you have um, Mr. Weber, special counsel come in and he basically says, you know, wouldn't we be doing the Indians themselves a kindness if we destroyed the reservation system and spread them so the 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 thought that's prevailing here is that it is in the these people's best interest to have their culture dissolved and to be assimilated into you know the the main white population so i think you know if we're going to pick one line um perhaps and there are several to choose from but one line that shows exactly what the people in this room were thinking and how they truly thought about this um, I think that that is a candidate to be probably the uh, the most shocking. So
0: you want to repeat that line, Joe?
1: Yes. So this is on page 18, and it's Mr. Weber. He says, wouldn't we be doing the Indians themselves a kindness if we destroyed the reservation system and spread them? Okay. Uh
4: Darren. A quick comment to that. Um, That sounds, again, if you isolate Maine from the federal government, that sounds like shocking, but that was the Dawes Act. And the Dawes Act, of course, is exactly uh, about that issue. And the Dawes Act itself has to be understood in a larger transatlantic context because in Europe, the communal systems of farmers in the 19th century, uh, in my own country, in the Netherlands, were also broken up Uh, of the so-called markens, so the communal grounds were broken up because the idea here was, of course, that communalism or communism that that would hold back back the people in terms of private enterprise. The real beneficiaries of the breakup in the Netherlands of the communal system were the industrialists who, who had capital to buy up all the land once it was broken up because none of the individual farmers could afford it. And that's exactly what happened, of course, with the Dawes Act that many of the reservations uh, were broken up um, and many people, if they could sell it or lease it out, they did. Uh, but ultimately it was an effort as you just correctly pointed out uh, to destroy the tribes and um, and by destroying the communal holdings. And so, but this is not new. This is a typically 1890 Dawes Act um, it, that permeates this particular uh, round table in, that, um, in Augusta. Karen?
2: Yeah, I think <clears throat> uh, that connection with the Dawes Act, I think, is is good. Um, the, you know, the Dawes Act was brought uh, into being by uh, a, a group of politicians who called themselves the Friends of the Indian um, as well, which is to say, I mean, the the question is, you know, this is politics, right, and policy together, Um did they actually think of themselves as the friends of the Indian? Um, the line goes, I think, through the Dawes Act that um, it would be either this or some sort of military campaign, right, against the Native people to take lands. So I think the idea that this was a friend, a, a more friendly framework uh, to break up their reservation, uh, have this forced assimilation through farming, these sorts of things. Um, through the Dawes Act, you know, is only understood as friends um, uh, compared to the idea that they would be exterminated in some other way. Um, And I think that that's what's motivating so much of this. Right. I mean, uh, the the again, the idea that you could um, a service to someone would be would be to take their land again (laughs) well you know I don't know how which how many times this would be but okay take their land again force them you know in some way off of uh, these these plots of land to um, do them a favor is is at best uh, perverse right Um, at worst it is genocide Um, and I think the you know I think when we you know when we think about how policy and and law are are kind of come together into these political situations that um the dismissiveness around the idea that folks who are sympathetic to the indian plight um are not thinking logically right but in fact these people who are making these decisions are are completely interested in <laughs> in an outcome that benefits them directly. Um, so I think that this is, you know, just one of those situations. And, you know, Donna, we pointed it out. I mean, this was in the report and, and um, you know, uh, Harold mentioned Hildreth and, and, you know, him bringing up Bran, who, who I believe is Louis Bran, right, the former governor of, of Maine, who was, I think, running for the first district uh, represent, representative in the uh, you know, like, he brought in Brand, you know, to, to say, like, we should support him, you know, in this New Deal kind of uh, context. I mean, he's using this as a political moment to even, you know, say he he supports Brand over whoever else is running in the first district. So, I mean, I, I don't know. The, 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 the level of... Um, ick, you know the level of kind of disgust that if you really think about this these decision making frameworks and how um you know i wish you know some of this though still happens um you know if i think about you know my observing of of um the discussions that i witnessed last year um and in consideration of ld 1626 in the judiciary you had similar kinds of things going on which was a um, you know sometimes a level of ignorance that was disturbing because you're like oh they don't understand even what they're talking about right or and they have to make a decision around a, a, a legislation that impacts us but then also the way that the politics of the moment comes into it in terms of like you know this 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 party is against you know the notion of a handout and um but then they also don't you know, they they don't want tax dollars going towards something. But then on the other hand, they also don't want federal help or tax dollars going to alleviate a situation. You know, and then, again, it's like putting a, you know, hundreds of years of kind of legal and political drama and then shrinking it into this particular moment in time, um, you know, f- Forces these, you know, when you're actually not asking people what do they want, um, forces these sort of really bad um, frameworks to to take hold, Um, and I just can't, you know, and I I I agree with like uh, Harold. I think, you know, there are folks from the tribes. I think probably witnessing this. Like, I mean that that was a good imaginary to say. Like, what would these these leaders from the tribes think about? think about this discussion um, in terms of you're not even asking us, you know, what, what do we want and how do we want to frame this? Um, I think it's just, you know, alarming, of course.
0: Uh, Eric?
3: Uh, I was, as I was listening to the discussion about the Dawes Act, the, the practical effect of the Dawes Act was just what the, um, they wanted, which was the, the reservations in Oklahoma became fractured They have checkerboard reservations throughout Oklahoma where individuals were given a plot of land and then they sold it and uh, they were lost to the tribe. It is a, the Dawes Act was a driving force of attempting assimilation uh, out west. And it certainly was something that the state of Maine was looking at here. I think what I found particularly striking as we talk about it was actually where we started with the conversation where, Boucher had said, if a white man has a squaw, get them off the reservation and keep them off for the rest of their life, and the children can't go back. That essentially is, we are going to destroy the, uh, that is a blatant statement of we are going to destroy the tribes. Um, when you read the, the preamble to the Indian Child Welfare Act, it starts with the only, the, the children are the future of the tribes, and without the children, there is no tribe.
2: Yeah, it's supposedly a, a statement by people who believe in freedom, right? You know what I'm saying? Like that they would, <laughs> like, how would you restrict any child returning to where they were born? And think about doing that to any other group. Right. Joe, a quick, a,
4: a quick comment about that. Uh, it's important again to look at the Wabanaki as a trans. Uh, transnational, transborder uh, uh, group of nations because for the Maliseet and uh, the Mi'kmaq, uh, for example, who have their majority of their population on the other side, the so-called Indian Act of Canada applied and the Indian Act uh, prescribed exactly that rule whereby a native woman marrying a white man, she would lose her Indian status. Uh, so it's very important to um, not isolate Maine from these larger uh, frameworks, um, both legal and political, on both sides of the border because they all apply. Not all the people on that committee understood that. But one has to assume that a guy like Hildreth would have known um, or should have known. Uh, I cannot imagine that they walked completely ignorant into these co- uh, committees. Uh, a guy like Palatier uh, would not. Uh, and uh, I've always in my own work uh, with um, in Indian country and politics and the legal issues. I've always looked at the biographies of these judges and these politicians, who are these people? Because in the final analysis, these are human beings who are, to use the anthropological term, they have habitus, they have been formed, they have been shaped. um, And you cannot just see them out of context as if these people are just writing something um, in, in the abstract, they are not. The other thing is just my final comment is, um, the 1942 date is very important because the people that are being discussed have all, either they are overseas in the Pacific or they are in uh, North Africa at the time. Um, the number of um, uh, Penobscot and Quality, but also Maliseet and Mi'kmaq, who are in um, in harm's way, literally, fighting for the... Um, uh, against fascism, both Japanese and Italian and German, Um, a number of them lost their lives. Many of them came back wounded, but these are the men and who, and also women, there were a number of women who served as well. Um, But these are the people who are being talked about in terms of destroying their rights. And so it's an ironic uh, placement by looking at 1942, uh, what is the status of the country at that time it is in a country at war with many of the Native Americans who don't have voting rights uh, were drafted, which was the whole complaint by Lucy, Nic- Lucy uh, Nicola uh, uh, by saying, I have four sons and they're all um, uh, to be drafted um, under the law. And so uh, the ironies and the contradictions are just all over the map. Joe?
3: Correct me if I'm wrong. Is the I had always believed that the Native Americans had the highest per capita representation in the military of any ethnic uh, group.
4: That is correct. Yeah, yeah, that that, that is correct. And there were two reasons. Uh, People think it's all patriotism, but it was also poverty. Um, And uh, you have to understand this in terms of. Uh, two factors. Just like today, um, I taught in Kansas, right next to Fort Riley. If you look at the people who are in the military, there are not that many people who are from Harvard or from Yale or from Cornell, uh, but from places like Kansas State University and community colleges, you see them galore. All right.
1: Joe? All right. So I think, you know,
4: well,
1: I think it probably is a good time to read another passage that we've covered today but i think ties together nicely with what we've been talking about and this is on the bottom of page 21 um and it goes on to page 22 and this is testimony of norman mcdonald who again was was running the department of uh health Health and human services um he says quote i think you would have to set up some plan whereby children born after a certain date, for instance, would not become members of the tribe. And people who now own property died off their property would revert to the state. And we might make some provision for these Indian reservations to be included in adjacent towns and to become part of adjacent towns. So I'm going to pause there, and quote. I mean, that right there, when you're talking about the uh, land claim settlement and you're talking about the you know quasi- quasi-municipal status that is uh you know placed upon the tribes in maine um you can see roots of that right here in 1942 i'm just going to pick back up and this is mcdonald again quote or else we might divide up the reservation make them part of adjacent towns and give to each indian a certain piece of property give him title to it and give them the rights of citizenship let them vote and do everything anybody else does Then we would have the right to sell the property to whoever he pleased. Probably that would be the easiest way to ever get the tribe broken up because in many instances they would sell and white people would own the reservation and that would scatter the tribe. And then he ends by saying whether that is fair or reasonable, I don't know. So even some self-reflection there in that last line. Um, but I I wanted to highlight that because I think in this conversation of assimilation, um, you can see that there's definitely animus here um, that clearly, I think, but by their own plain words. I mean, you have discussions of should we put to put to use this plan of, you know, taking property from the tribe? And putting it into the hands of quote white people white pe- quote white people would own the reservation and that would scatter the tribe end quote.
0: Darren,
2: yeah, I mean, I think again, this is sort of uh, um, evil masked as benevolence, right? Um, the uh, I'm also drawn to and and I meant to mention this before the 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 way that. Um, something like religious diversity or or or, or um, other forms of like, you know, that we talk about things um, that, you know, and Harold's familiar with this, like the idea of factionalism or political disagreements within the context of a tribal nation is seen as um, a weakness, right? Or as a, um, a, a, a fault or a failure of us, and 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 often um, is used as a way to kind of you know engender some other entity deciding something for us. But um, you know, I I don't see them saying because there's religious diversity in you know Lewiston um, that uh, at the time that they would you know somehow you know rearrange the property system or break people up or force segregation or. Or whatever, right? I mean that's that's anathema to um sort of uh the an American ethos uh, I think. Um so I, I just you know it just it just strikes me again this sort of you know all the tropes uh that that um um are about you know racism against uh, native people, um our children and, and their well-being, uh uh, just just how easily employed these things are, you know, that like it, it, it's funny because it's like, you know, uh, we we when you teach about sort of the federal government's rationales for c- colonial policy, they'll you know, they, they kind of invent things like factionalism, because clearly Uh, Native people all agreed at some point on everything, you know, which is an absurd notion, Um, but we had our own mechanisms to deal with these disagreements, of course, and that is the core of our sovereignty, right, is that our governance systems dealt quite well with uh, internal disagreements and for then, a colonial force to come in and sort of use this uh, opportunity of the fact that we don't all agree to then institute a policy that removes our rights is
3: just, um, you know, greatly evil and absurd i we've We've talked a lot about assimilation, and that's run through this, but I think the thing to be clear about with it is assimilation means elimination. yeah, I mean, assimilation is even in in a way a softer term for exactly what was happening. It was this policy that, that was being pursued was about elimination of the tribes.
0: Harold, last comment?
4: Yeah, the, um, uh, the issue of um, assimilation is of course, part of the idea of the American melting pot too, right? So you get, again, this larger framework where um, anyone who comes uh, to this country is becoming, quote, American, and uh, that's been the persistent problem, I think, for indigenous peoples that this is not an issue of minority rights, it's an issue of sovereignty, and that distinguishes all uh, American Indians from all the other hyphenated Americans, um, whether it's Asian Americans or African Americans or Euro-Americans or whatever you may have. Uh, So the issue of Native rights and civil rights is occasionally on on a collision course, and people have wrapped their minds around the idea of civic rights or civil rights, um, but don't really understand the, the distinction between uh, native rights as opposed to civil rights. And so uh, as a result of the, 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 the two streams um, are running occasionally counter to each other. And that creates the kind of current that confuses people because they, they don't understand sometimes that when you give someone a voting right, that would be from one perspective a good thing but from another perspective as the Penobscot leaders very well understood that's precisely the the poison pill that i referred to earlier that was a means of abolishment of their tribal rights their native rights and so that's perpetually this this contradiction that uh, that is popping up which i find uh, a fascinating and b troubling and c uh, I realized why so many people continue to be confused after all these
0: discussions about the same uh, subject. Yeah, thank you, Harold. Uh, so thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donald Loring, and you've been listening to Abenaki Windows. I wanna thank Judge Eric Menert, Attorney Joe Gauss, Professors Harold Prince and Darren Ranko for being on the show today. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD, Dreamwalk, the engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart of WMPG and John Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another Webenaki Windows.